got your Bibles, we are in the book of Hebrews. And we are moving towards kind of the end. We will be finishing this up right before Christmas. And today we're in Hebrews chapter 13. So if you've got your Bibles or maybe you have a Bible app on your phone or your iPad, that would be great. Now, if you've not been with us, let me just remind you that the writer of the book of Hebrews has been writing to believers who have come up out of Judaism. So they come up out of the law. That was their background. They've heard of the grace that is in Jesus. They've put their faith, their trust in him. They've accepted Christ as their savior. But in the journey between persecution, between issues that are going on, some of them are falling away. Some of them are wanting to head back into Judaism. So the writer of this book has written and with some major themes. Of course, the biggest theme of all is the superiority of Christ. That Jesus is far superior to anything you're going to find in Judaism. Why in the world would you want to go back? And even though, yes, it does mean that we're going to face some difficulty in this life, press on, push on, don't quit, don't fall back, don't turn away, because that is going to bring great reward in the life that is to come. And so that's been the heart of this book. And of course, he's, he's taken Old Testament passages, he's weaves these beautiful narratives about how Jesus is superior, right up until we get to chapter 13. And chapter 13 is, is there's a, just a real change in the tenor of the book, because now it just becomes, instead of these long, drawn-out pieces that are just beautiful in the way they're written, this is almost like staccato. It's just, how do you live this out now? So he starts with you got to love, right? You got to love, you got to love the brethren. You got to love the strangers. You got to love the prisoners. You got to love your spouse. Then you got to learn to be content with what you got. Uh, Then last week Trevor was dealing with then you need to imitate your leaders, but don't let them pull you astray. And now we come to verse 10, and it's interesting. Because it's almost like in the middle of it, whatever burden has been upon his heart for actually writing the book he actually leans right back in to these major themes of jesus as far superior so even in the midst of difficulty press on because of the day that's to come so let's read the text together i think you'll see it verse 10 we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city. But we are seeking the city which is to come. So he's going to talk about the privilege. He's going to talk about the persecution, the perspective. So the privilege, to understand this, you really got to understand the Old Testament. His point here is this, that under Jesus, Jesus is so far superior that you and I, under Jesus, have way higher privilege than not only the priest, but even the high priest has under Judaism. And so what he says is this, 
Spirit, we have, you and I have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. What's he trying to say? Well, you've got to stop for a moment. Because the reality is, the, the priests, the Levites, had the right to, to eat what was sacrificed. So if you remember, when God brought the children of Israel into the land of, uh, of Israel, and he gave them all allotments, the only tribe that did not get an allotment of land was the Levites. That's the, what the priests come out of. Why? Because God says, I am your portion. I am your inheritance. And so how God is going to take care of the Levites is this, that when people would bring their sacrifices, when people would bring their grain offerings, when people would bring their tithes, it's out of these sacrifices that they get food to eat and they get money to live on. So you go back to Leviticus. It says, the priest shall offer up the fat and smoke offering. So he's making the sacrifice for someone. But the breast shall belong to Aaron and his sons. This is how God is going to take care of the priests. They get to eat of that which is on the altar. You go later in Numbers 18. It says, this shall be yours. He's speaking to Aaron and the Levites here from the most holy gifts reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, every grain offering, every sin offering, every guilt offering, which they shall render to me shall be most holy for you and for your sons. So this is what they, this is how God would take care of them. This is how they would eat. So what does he mean that we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat? Hmm. There's been one unique sacrifice that the writer of Hebrews has talked about over and over and again, and it was the sacrifice that took place on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, because that was the one day and the one sacrifice where the high priest would take the blood and actually go into the Holy of Holies. If you remember, there were actually two sacrifices. The first was a, a bull, and... That sacrifice was for his sins and the sins of his family. So he would sacrifice the bull on the altar, take the blood in to the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And then he would take a goat. And if you remember, there were actually two goats. One would be sacrificed. The other one became, do you remember what it was called? Scapegoat, right? It was taken out in the wilderness to signify their sins being taken away. But now the goat is sacrificed, and he takes that blood, and he goes into the Holy of Holies, to the very Ark of the Covenant, sprinkles it on the mercy seat. This is for the sins of the people. But here's the thing. These two sacrifices, the high priests were not allowed to eat. They were too holy. These had to be burned. So they were taken outside the camp. And this is his point, that no priest, not even the high priest, was able to enjoy the benefit of the sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. So when he's talking about the altar, what he's specifically talking about here is not the bronze altar, but he's talking about the altar of sacrifice of the Day of Atonement. And his point is here that the high priests were not even able to benefit from that. That was not part of their portion because it was too holy. It was too righteous. It had to be taken out of the camp. So you go to Leviticus and it says this, 
but the bull of the sin offering and the goat offering of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuge in fire. Nobody got to eat of it. Now, when they're in the, in the wilderness, they would go outside the camp. There was a place to burn it. What's interesting is that the same thing happened in the temple. That sacrifice could not be eaten. It had to be taken outside the city, and it had to be burned. So, what, 10 days ago, we're actually up on the temple site. And we're looking east. So if you're looking east from where the temple is, you know what you're looking at? You're looking at the Mount of Olives. And our guide goes, oh, by the way, look up there on the Mount of Olives. By the way, Mount of Olives is cool, right? That's where Jesus left from, and that's where Jesus is coming back from, right? So if you remember the eastern gate, it's all bricked in because supposedly the next one to go through it is the Messiah. So you're looking east. In fact, we're walking down these steps to go see the eastern gates. But he says, look up there, and about where you start to see those buildings, that's where on the Day of Atonement, the priest would take the goat and the bull offering from that sacrifice, and that's where they would burn it. Because in Jewish tradition, he had to, as he burnt the bull and the goat, he had to be able to look into the holy place. So it had to be up and above. So that's where it was. So what's the writer of Hebrews saying? What he's saying is this. To Jesus, who, by the way, is our atonement, he was our sacrifice where the blood has been sprinkled on the mercy seat before the Father. But guess what? He invites us to eat of him every day. He invites us to be benefited by him every day. To enjoy him every day. The high priest could never benefit personally from the, the atonement sacrifice. But you and I in Jesus not only have atonement, but we have the benefit of him every day that we get to eat of him, that we get to participate of him. In fact, do you remember what Jesus said when he instituted communion? Matthew 26, take, eat, this is my body. Now let me ask you, under Judaism, could, could Jews eat human flesh? No. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. He then comes with the cup, and he says this, he says, um, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. I want you to drink from it, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Could, could people under Judaism drink blood? No, in fact, when you think kosher, part of kosher is just simply the way the animals are killed with the blood drained out, let alone human blood you couldn't do it it was against the law and yet jesus said this is my blood drink from it and then you think of that wonderful passage in john chapter 6 the discourse of i'm the bread of life so you remember jesus fed the five thousand. the next day everybody showed up and, and jesus said you're here because i fed you uh 
And then he makes this point that God sent manna to feed the Israelites in the wilderness, but now God has sent him to become that bread of life and everyone who eats of him. And in John 6, 51, he says, I'm the living bread that comes down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, which is what? Me, he will live forever. The bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, historically, this has created a lot of confusion. So in some traditions of Christianity, when they go to take communion, their thought is, because of what Jesus said here and what Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you, this is my blood, that literally in the act of taking communion, that that bread becomes the body of Jesus. So you literally consume the body of Jesus, and the juice or the wine becomes his blood. Now... We don't hold to that. And what was interesting, we bought a Catholic church. And I'd never really thought about these things. But some stuff was going on in the building, which was quite interesting. And all of a sudden it dawned on me, wait a minute. If you think that the bread literally becomes the body of Jesus, what do you do with what's left over? Do you throw it in the garbage? If you think the juice, the wine, literally becomes the blood of Christ, do you just pour it into the drain so it goes into the sewer system? So literally there's a drain in the building that goes nowhere but out into the yard. It goes back into the earth. So they take it very literally. The question is, is did Jesus mean this literally? And I'm going to argue... If you just go a couple verses later, he makes it really clear. It's not literal. It's a figurative piece. What he says in verse 56 is, He who eats my flesh, drinks my blood, he uh, abides in me, and I in him. This is all about relationship. That we get to participate with Jesus. That we get to benefit from him in our life. That we get to abide in him. He abides in us. We know his grace, his strength, his wisdom. Do you get how good this is, right? I, I got to make sure you understand how good this is. His point is, Jesus is so far greater. These high priests who are the, the pinnacle, the high priest, there's only one. There's still, he cannot benefit from the atonement sacrifice, which, by the way, has to be done year after year after year. But there's no personal benefit to them. You and I have a sacrifice which not only benefits us for our sins being forgiven, but our sins are forgiven once and for all. They're never to be remembered again. And oh, by the way, it even cleanses our mind from that consciousness of sin because we know that it's been buried in the depths of the sea. And oh, by the way, it's even better than that. You and I get to eat. We get to partake. We get to participate with Jesus every step of the way. Remember what he just said a couple verses before this? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He is there with grace. He is there with mercy. He is there with strength. He is there with wisdom. Everything that we need, we get to participate. We get to partake of Jesus every day. That's our privilege. And of course, as hard as this, folk, why in the world would you go back? Why would you leave grace and go back under law? In fact, if you go back to verse uh, verse 9 that 
Trevor dealt with last week. He says, so he's talking about these leaders. He says, but don't be carried away by their varied and strange teachings. Some of them were the ones that were pushing to go back. He says, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by rules and not by laws, but by grace. We have something that's so great. And this is our privilege that you and I get to commune with Jesus every day. He not only is our atonement. He not only is our forgiveness. He is not only our access into God. But he is our portion. Every day. Folk, do we take advantage of that? Do we lean into Jesus? Do we spend time with him every day, finding from him the grace, the strength, the mercy that we need? That's his point. For we have an altar of which the high priest has no right, but you and I have the right. Because we've been invited into relationship with Jesus through grace. Now, oh, by the way, in the midst of that, as we walk by grace, that's going to lead to persecution you see he says here verse 11 for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp therefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people through his own blood suffered outside the gate so let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach Jesus as our sin offering had to die now what's interesting when you think about the sacrifice of the atonement the sacrifice actually started in the city so it started on the bronze altar before the holy of holies but it ended outside the camp Jesus atonement for us started where inside the city as he is Flogged there at the praetorium, the crown of thorns placed upon his hand. He is ridiculed. But where does he go? He goes outside the city. So if you go to Israel today, there are two places where historically they believe it may be that Jesus died. The one is covered by a church. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Today, it is inside the walls of Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, it wasn't. It was outside the wall. The other place is a place called Gordon's Calvary. You've probably seen pictures. There's a rock formation. It kind of looks like a, a face, a skull. And it's right outside the Damascus Gate. And what's in, intriguing to believers and evangelicals who kind of lean toward that site is that it's outside the Damascus Gate. Well, why do they call it the Damascus Gate? Because that's the road that goes to Damascus. It's the freeway. Well, here's the thing about Romans. When they crucified people, they didn't do it in the back streets. They did it on the freeways because they wanted everybody to know, you mess with us, this is what happens to you. They, wanted, they, they believed it was a deterrent. So it makes sense. Man, out of the Damascus Road, that's where Jesus is put. And oh, by the way, they have found just around the corner. I mean, literally, you don't even need a good arm. There's a, there, there's a garden and a tomb. And oh, by the way, it's empty. Jesus had to die outside the camp. Now, what he's doing here is he's actually doing a play on words. 
So he talks about outside the camp. So he's going back to the tabernacle when this was in the wilderness. It had to be outside the camp. What was the camp? The camp of, of Israel. Jesus, when he died, well, it wasn't a camp, it was a city, so he was outside the gate. But oh, by the way, that means that you and I got to be willing to go outside the camp. Well, to the people he's writing to, what is he referring to? What he's talking about is not the city of Jerusalem. What he's talking about is the camp of Judaism. You've got to go outside the camp. You've got to go pitch your flag with Jesus. We are to stand with him, identify with him. And with that, we endure the same disgrace, the same censure that might come. Now, for those of us who are here, most of us is not coming out of the camp of Judaism. But what I would argue with you, that all of us have a camp. And whether it's a camp of culture, or a camp of family, or a camp of friends, that when we identify with Jesus, there's points at which that takes us outside of that community. You know, here in America, I think we are all aware that our culture, our country, which was built on biblical truth, and our culture, which embraced Christianity, is becoming more and more anti-Christianity. And this idea, I think, of persecution is growing more and more and will continue to grow more and more. It's been a big thing for us, but it's becoming. So if you and I go identify with Jesus, that Jesus is the way, the only way of salvation, we're narrow-minded and we're bigoted. We're outside the camp. If we go pitch our flag with Jesus and that the Bible is true and God has certain ways laws of morality that we hold to we're narrow-minded we're bigoted the reproach is going to come just like with them but that's his point if jesus went out the camp, because think about jesus he's out there what's happening to him hey if you're the son of god come down off the cross then we'll believe Right, He's taking the reproach. He's taking the shame. He's hanging there in his nakedness. He is the one, everyone who dies on a tree is hung, is cursed. Go pitch your camp with Jesus. It kind of reminds us of what Jesus told us, that if we wanted to follow him, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Paul put it like this in 2 Timothy. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Folk, his point is this. We have incredible privilege in Jesus. But in moments, it is going to, when we identify with him, whether it's Judaism or whether it's a culture or whether it's a family or friends or whatever, we're going to have to go outside the camp sometimes. And we're going to have to bear the reproach. Now the question is, how do we do this? And I think here in America, because we've had it so good for so long, this is where we miss. Because see, Jesus is our example. He, he's our example for how we do this. So Jesus is out there, and he's been falsely accused. He is the Son of God. What does he do? Does he get mad? Does he get angry? Does he... Does he 
let loose with all kinds of curses on these people? No. Actually, to the ones who literally put the spike in his arms and hoisted him on the cross, his word to them was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The people who mocked him, you're the son of God, save yourself, save others. Eh, there's two of them right by They also are dying. One of them, though, changes his mind after cursing and ridiculing Jesus. He saw something was different. He said, Lord, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Jesus didn't say, hey, man, get a life. Remember what you just said 30 minutes ago? No, he said, today. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Folk, how do we do this? How do we do this in a culture that makes fun of our values? that belittles Christ, that causes us to, to, you know, that we are now marginalized as those who are bigoted and narrow-minded and hateful. Got to do it with grace. We have to do it with mercy. Remember what Paul told us in Romans. Don't, don't repay evil for evil love your enemies pray for those who do you wrong that's what Jesus did and the reason is it's because of our perspective and I love verse 14 for here we do not have a lasting city but we are seeking that city which is to come. Now a major theme of Hebrews has not only been the superiority of Christ, it's not just been the fact that we need to persevere in the midst of persecution. It is this idea that this world is not our home. Right? You go all the way back to chapter 1 where Jesus is talking about the angels and they're sent to minister for us who will inherit salvation, right? He's pointing to what's coming in the future. Chapter 2, he talks about the salvation which is to come. Chapter, what is it? Chapter 4, he talks about that there remains a Sabbath rest, an inheritance for the people of God. You think about how even in chapter 12, he talks about it with Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He was looking to what is coming. He just continues to remind us of this, that this world is not our home. And his point here is we don't have a lasting city. It, everything here is temporary. Man, clothes wear out, cars wear out, house. You ever bought a new house? You know, it's so nice and clean, and, you know, and 10 years later, man, everything's breaking. It's just the way of this world. There's, there's nothing lasting here. And, of course, we live in this snapshot of time, and yet we forget that's the way it is with the world. Man, kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. So we're in Israel, and what's fascinating, when you look at the history of Israel, which is kind of the center of the world, I mean, they argue, they don't know if it's Jericho or Damascus, but literally the longest inhabited cities in the world. So they've been there forever. But if you look about every 400 years, man, there's a somebody comes in and takes over. Somebody conquers. 
and you can actually see the layers. It's just there is nothing lasting in this world. This world is not our home. It's temporary. We're looking for something lasting. We're like Abraham for that house whose builder and architect is God. And his point is, listen, that's what we live for. We're living for that home which is in the future. That, that, that place where, where we will be at home. That place where there will be no more sickness and no more cancer and no... Folk! I never thought about this before to this week. Do you know in heaven there will never, ever be another election? Ever! Jesus is king. He's always going to be king. There will never be people that see this world completely different than how we see it because we will be unified in the truth that is in Jesus. And we get home and there will be no more death and no more sorrow and no more crying. Folks, that's, that's what we live for. And that's why the Bible says that we have to live this life by faith. Right? We live by faith. We're not there. We're living for a city that we've not seen. And yet, we long for it. We're, we're living for a city that we've never touched. And yet, we order our life for that day when we're there. We're living for a city that we've never tasted. And yet our heart is drawn towards it. Why? Because it's by faith. You remember what he Hebrews 11 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's his whole point. We have the privilege of knowing Jesus and in a relationship with him, even though he is our atonement. We are benefited by him every day. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. So now, in this world, we got to go outside the camp, even if it brings ridicule, even if it brings scorn. We've got to model Jesus. Why? Because we're living for that day. That day. I couldn't help but, as I was processing this in my heart to think of an old an old song we used to sing for those of you've been around church you're probably familiar with it but some of it might be new but it goes like this oft times the days seem long we're tempted to despair to worry to complain but Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away all tears forever over in God's eternal day it will be worth it all when we see Jesus life's trials seem so small when we see Christ one glimpse one glimpse, one glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So, bravely run the race till we see Christ. This is exactly what he's saying. We have an altar. 
that the priests don't have any right to partake of. So we need to go outside the camp. We need to identify with Jesus. We need to react and respond like he did. Even though we're outside the norm. Because we're living. We're living for another home. We're living for another world. And on that day, it'll be worth it all. Thank you.